0: Hey again, everyone. I'm Joan Obra.
1: And I'm Ralph Gaston.
0: And you're listening to Catch Me Up to Speed, the podcast by two reporters turned coffee farmers. Now that we're no longer in the newsroom, we help you deconstruct the news like a journalist and give you the historical context that's missing from the daily grind. So, guys, we've been busier now that our coffee harvest has begun, but as always, we're still paying attention to the news for you. And today, we want to talk about one of the biggest recent news items, the Texas Heartbeat Act, which is a state law that went into effect on September 1st. Now, unless you guys have been hiding under a rock for the past couple of weeks, you've heard about this act, right? It prohibits anyone in Texas from getting an abortion if they are pregnant for more than six weeks. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and the U.S. Supreme Court declined to hear a challenge to it, paving the way for it to become state law. So the media reaction went like this. The immediate focus was on Texas women and access to abortion services, especially since, you know, six weeks is really early in a pregnancy. Many, many women don't even know they're pregnant at that point. And then simultaneously, we saw outrage over the way the law is enforced. Because instead of the state of Texas acting as the enforcement arm, the law encourages private citizens to go after each other for a cash reward. Now, one of the most shocking aspects of this law is the way that it penalizes intent. So let's talk about two hypothetical people to illustrate what this means, right? We've got Dan and Jenny. So Dan suspects that Jenny has the intent to get an abortion herself or to help somebody else get an abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. Now, again, Dan may not witness Jenny actually doing any abortion-related activities, but he can still file a civil lawsuit against her, and if the court rules in favor of that lawsuit, Jenny has to pay Dan a minimum of $10,000, and she also has to cover the legal expenses for both parties. Oh, and then if the court doesn't agree with Dan, Jenny gets no money, and she still is forced to pay her legal fees. (laughs) So you guys can see how outrageous this is and why the media went into a frenzy. But, you know, our reaction was a bit different, right, Ralph? Yeah. I mean, ours and what we saw on September 1st, you know, was something bigger. So Ralph turned to me and he said, this is like the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. And then he went on to remind me that this style of governing not only existed during the slavery era, it ushered in Jim Crow. And you guys, when Ralph said that, I was like, oh, shit, this is our episode four. Right, Ralph?
1: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it really was. This is what we talked about.
0: Yeah. And so do you guys remember the one called It Has Happened Here? Go back and listen to that one after this one, and you'll see why we immediately picked up on the broader implications of this Texas law.
1: And it didn't take long for others to pick up on this as well. Uh, Well-credentialed historian Heather Cox Richardson made the same point in her Facebook post on September 3rd. She wrote, The new anti-abortion law in Texas is not just about abortion. It's about undermining civil rights decisions made by the Supreme Court during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. The Supreme Court declined to stop a state law that violates a constitutional right. She also wrote this, A state has undermined the power of the federal government to protect civil rights. It has given individuals who disagree with one particular right the power to take it away from their neighbors. But make no mistake, there is no reason that this mechanism couldn't be used to undermine much of the civil rights legislation of the post-World War II years.
0: So guys, we're going to link to Cox Richardson's post because it gathers a lot of the history needed to understand this moment. And in this episode, we're going to flesh her theme out with even more history and context because this is a really critical time. Understand, it was the federal courts and the U.S. Supreme Court that helped create Jim Crow and then to dismantle it. And that history gives us clues about what could happen next, not just with the new Texas abortion law, but also with our civil rights, voting rights, and property rights. So, Ralph, let's start with a recap of the courts and this Texas abortion law. What did the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals do here to help push this law forward? And then what did the Supreme Court do?
1: Well, as we said earlier, this act makes any abortion in the state illegal after six weeks of pregnancy when, according to the state, a fetal heartbeat can be detected. So because of all of this, the law was challenged in court by Texas abortion providers. Those providers lost their lawsuit in district court, so then they appealed the decision to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And from that point, things got very much unprecedented. The Fifth Circuit Court canceled hearings and motions for the appeal, and that caused the plaintiffs to seek an emergency appeal from the U.S. Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court also refused to grant the appeal in a five to four decision. Because of all this, that bill became Texas state law and became active, as we said, on September 1st. Now, because of the way the law is written, it is seen as a way to circumvent Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court decision that made abortion legal in the United States. And other state legislatures are already considering passage of a similar bill. Four of the dissenting Supreme Court justices, Sotomayor, Kagan, Breyer, and Roberts, all wrote dissenting opinions. And it's also very rare, because normally only one judge is chosen to write the opinion for the dissent.
0: It was Judge Sotomayor's dissenting opinion that stood out to us. So we're going to link to that one in the show notes, and we're going to use it to highlight three key elements of this act and the court's treatment of it. So the first section that we're going to quote here is her recap of the act itself. She wrote, The Act authorizes any private citizen to file a lawsuit against any person who provides an abortion in violation of the Act, quote-unquote aids or abets such an abortion, including by paying for it, regardless of whether they know the abortion is prohibited under the Act or even intends to engage in such conduct. Courts are required to enjoin the defendant from engaging in these actions in the future and to award the private citizen plaintiff at least $10,000 in quote-unquote statutory damages for each forbidden abortion performed or aided by the defendant. So guys, all of that is a more formal explanation for the hypothetical scenario with Dan and Jenny that I pointed out earlier. And this next sentence from Sotomayor makes a crystal clear point. She wrote, In effect, the Texas legislature has deputized the state's citizens as bounty hunters, offering them cash prizes for civilly prosecuting their neighbor's medical procedures. Now, Ralph immediately, when he saw this part of the law, he knew not only what it would mean, but what it harkens back to.
1: Yeah, exactly. Deputization of citizens in this way has rightfully brought about comparisons to the 1850s in the wake of the Fugitive Slave Act. Now, that act was part of the Compromise of 1850, which was written to appease southern states who were pushing to expand slavery north and west as the United States continued to expand its borders. And at this time, a decade before the start of the Civil War, there were states in the South talking about secession. So the Compromise of 1850 was all about let's keep the quote-unquote harmonious union together. Of course, northern states had resisted the earlier 1793 Fugitive Slave Act. And what they did is use state laws to weaken that act and make it ineffective if they so chose. This is why slaves could escape north of the Mason-Dixon line and be free. They could go to Pennsylvania or Ohio or free states and be free because those states would not enforce the Slave Act and they used state laws to stop it.
0: Well, they also didn't have slavery active in those states, right?
1: Right. I mean, but it was a combination of both. Right. So then the 1850 Act comes along, and what they did with that act is circumvent state laws to make all fugitive slave cases federal. Not only that, those cases were now to be decided in front of federal commissioners, so no jury trial was granted. This act forced citizens themselves to assist in the recovery of escaped slaves, and if those citizens aided a fugitive in escaping, they were subject to a $1,000 fine and prosecution.
0: So I think you guys can see how the opportunities for corruption are endless here, right? I mean, again, we're opening the door up to bounty hunting between officers and just regular folks, rounding up black people, whether or not they actually were slaves or not.
1: Right. And, and this this happened all the time. There's, a, of course, a famous book and movie, um, 12 Years a Slave, that talked about a case like this that happened in the early 1840s. So it's happening before this act, but This just made it all that much more profitable and alluring to people who think that way. For example, these commissioners that were to decide on the legality of a person being a slave or a free human being, they were paid $10 to rule that the detained black people brought before them were slaves, but they were only paid $5 to say they were not slaves. You can see how this makes the situation worse. There were already bounty hunters and slave catchers before, but the Fugitive Slave Act gave these people unfettered access to all northern states and territories and furthered the practice of not just tracking slaves, but the kidnapping and selling of freed men and women into slavery by lying about their legal status. This is why the Underground Railroad extended all the way to Canada at that point.
0: So let's get into another point from Sotomayor's dissent that stood out to us. She wrote, It cannot be the case that a state can evade federal judicial scrutiny by outsourcing the enforcement of unconstitutional laws to its citizenry. So guys, this refers to the fact that Texas itself is not enforcing this new abortion law. It's letting citizens do it. And that style of law is what brought us Jim Crow laws in the South.
1: Exactly, because it brings to mind how instrumental the Supreme Court was in ending Reconstruction and bringing about the conditions via judicial decisions that made it possible for Jim Crow to rise in the South. And when we think back on that era, the first case I want to bring up are the slaughterhouse cases of the late 1860s. And following that, the United States versus Cruikshank case, which came up in 1876. Both of these cases limited the power of the federal government to intervene in what the court saw as state matters. The Cruikshank case really is the one that set the initial precedent, in my opinion, because the defendant, Mr. Cruikshank, and his associates were accused of violating the civil rights of more than a dozen black people who were killed in the Colfax Massacre back in 1873. So understand that before the Slaughterhouse decision, The U.S. Attorney General at the time, under the Grant administration, had almost 2,000 prosecutions going on in the South, and he was using the power of the Enforcement Acts, which we also call the Klan Acts, as legal justifications for those prosecutions. But with Slaughterhouse and then the Cruikshank decision, the power of the U.S. Attorney General to use federal power to prosecute for people's rights in the South was pretty much gone, and it left black citizens to seek protection of their rights from state courts, and of course the states were being taken over by the Redeemers in the South, so they had no one to turn to. So you follow up these two cases with the pivotal civil rights cases in 1883. It was a group of five landmark cases in which the Supreme Court of the United States said that the 13th and 14th Amendments did not empower Congress to outlaw racial discrimination by private individuals which effectively overturned the Civil Rights Act of 1875. So you can see there with a a brief synopsis how these decisions paved the way for the Jim Crow era because it allowed the civil and voting rights of black citizens in the South to be attacked and curtailed. And the laws allowing this, from voting restrictions to separate facilities by race, were enacted state by state, year by year, leading into the early 20th century. And it's the connection between the state courts the state law enforcement, and the private citizenry in those states all working together that helped enact those Jim Crow policies and made sure that those guilty of violating civil rights faced no determined challenge from federal courts or lawmakers until the post-World War II era.
0: And so then this leads us to the final excerpt from Sotomayor's dissent that we want to bring up and it centers around the actions of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. She wrote, Over six weeks after the applicants filed suit to prevent the act from taking effect, a Fifth Circuit panel abruptly stayed all proceedings before the district court and vacated a preliminary injunction hearing that was scheduled to begin on Monday. The applicants requested emergency relief from this court, but the court said nothing. The act took effect at midnight last night. So you can see here that the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals is key to this entire saga. And Ralph, you saw the historical irony in the use of the Fifth Circuit Court to advance this cause.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a sad irony, actually. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has a key history in the civil rights era. Its jurisdiction originally included Louisiana, Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, and the Panama Canal Zone. And that Fifth Circuit was a key to keeping the fight for desegregation policies going in the 1950s when they did not get much support from the executive branch. And I'm going to give you a few cases that were heard at this Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in that era to give you an idea of what came through there at the time. 1956, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals declared segregated seating on city buses in Montgomery, Alabama, unconstitutional. This is the Montgomery bus boycott from the year prior from Martin Luther King and the uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC. So, this decision was the first time that any federal court had extended by implication the underlying principle of Brown versus Board of Education beyond just education. In 1962, there was a case of Meredith versus Fair. This case cleared the path for James Meredith to enroll at Ole Miss. James Meredith's enrollment at Ole Miss sparked a huge riot on that campus. In 1963, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals helped to strike down unequal access to voting in the United States versus Louisiana decision, and this was a clear precursor to the 1965 Voting Rights Act.
0: So you guys can see from these cases that in the 1950s and 60s, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals stepped in to aggressively protect people's rights, everything from racial integration to voting access, right? And now, today, that same court declined to even hear the case challenging the Texas Heartbeat Act. So this flip is no accident. As Ralph is going to explain, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals reflects a decades-long, big-money push to turn federal courts in general and the U.S. Supreme Court more conservative,
1: You know, the backlash against Roe v.ersus Wade was key in the push for more conservative judges. Now, we're going to step back a little further in time to give you a framework of the overall history of trying to remake the federal judiciary. The reaction to desegregation, which began after the Brown v.ersus Board of Education decision in 1954, was another key point. This is the era when you saw segregationists saying, impeach Earl Warren. So there was unrest growing with segregationists, and that was joining up with the unresting conservative business circles from the days of the New Deal.
0: Yeah. And guys, I know Ralph is kind of super condensing this piece here, but you remember the uh, Facebook post that we pointed out by historian Heather Cox Richardson, the one that she posted on September 3rd. Uh, that has a bigger description of what Ralph is talking about here. So we've linked to that in the show notes. You guys really should go and check that out.
1: Right. So it's in this atmosphere that the Heritage Foundation was founded in 1973, which happened to be the same year that Roe versus Wade, that decision happened at the United States Supreme Court. The Heritage Foundation was created by big business. Its largest donor early on was one of the three co-founders, Joseph Coors. And If that name sounds familiar, this is the man who created the Coors Beer franchise. The Heritage Foundation was against courts that they saw as activists against business, and they were very conservative against civil rights. They were pretty much with the segregationists. But, you know, they were looking to target the evangelical conservative community because they were looking for a base of support to separate themselves from older groups, such as the American Enterprise Institute or AEI.
0: So basically what you're saying is, is that if uh, the Heritage Foundation did not target the evangelical conservatives, they would have been too similar to AEI.
1: Right. And they, they, they had no opportunity for real growth and impact. They were too small and new, whereas AEI had the business community already. They were looking for a way to be influential. They saw evangelicals as their way. And the Heritage Foundation did this and got into that community by pushing the abortion issue which really hadn't been all that relevant in the minds of evangelicals in the early and mid-1970s. What the Heritage Foundation helped to do was use press printings, short movies, and direct discussions with evangelical leaders to make abortion a key wedge issue in the 1980 presidential election. And when Ronald Reagan won that election, it was a clear signal that their strategy had worked. The Heritage Foundation grew in money and power and influence during the Reagan years, and the political connections and strategies to remake the courts began to form and grow. And there's another group right here that I want to bring into the mix. That's the Federalist Society. The Federalist Society was formed in 1982. This was also an outgrowth of the Reagan Revolution era. Now, their focus was solely on the federal judiciary. They wanted their members to populate the judicial system from the courts to law offices. And how successful were they? Well, right now there are five Supreme Court justices who have ties or membership in the Federalist Society.
0: Now, you guys may remember that we referred to the Federalist Society in episode one. You know, when we introduced the news tip about following the money, we pointed out that Leonard Leo, co-chairman of the society, used his considerable fundraising skills to support the nominations of Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh for the U.S. Supreme Court. So go back and listen to episode number one as well, because that will give you some relevant information to what's going on today. Now, Kavanaugh is a good example of how the Federalist Society grooms potential judges from a young age. He joined the Federalist Society in 1988, right after graduating from Yale. Yale University is an undergrad, Right. He then went to Yale Law School, clerked for U.S. Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy, and then he worked on Ken Starr's legal team during the impeachment years of Bill Clinton. You remember that? The whole Monica Lewinsky thing oh,
1: he yes. went on. How, how can we forget? Yeah,
0: really. Um, then Kavanaugh, after that, worked for George W. Bush's administration until 2006 when Bush nominated him for the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Then from there, he was picked to replace his former mentor, Anthony Kennedy, on the Supreme Court in 2018. This entire time, save, you know, for a short period when he was working for the Bush White House, Kavanaugh was a member of the Federalist Society.
1: And while the Federalist Society was developing conservatives for the federal judiciary, the United States Senate was paving the way for them to be appointed. And this is the part of the story where we talk about the last 10 years and how important the fight to nominate and put judges on the federal bench during the Obama presidency really was. If we recall, President Barack Obama won his election in 2008, took office 2009, and he came in with what they usually call a clear mandate. 59 Democratic senators, one short of a filibuster-proof majority. So they have a lot of power there. But the Senate minority leader at that time, Mitch McConnell, was slowing down judicial appointments as much as possible. After the 2010 midterms, when Republicans took over the House of Representatives and the Democrat majority in the Senate shrunk, McConnell started outright filibustering judicial nominees all across the board, not just Supreme Court, but anyone in the lower courts. Because by now, Kagan and Sotomayor have been nominated and placed on the Supreme Court.
0: And guys, I know that, you know, Ralph's doing a very short description of the fight around the filibuster here but you may recall that in what episode was it now i can't keep them straight 10
1: Ah, yes. Episode 10, The History of the Filibuster.
0: Yeah. So while Ralph is uh, going through the filibuster very quickly here and how it applied to that particular moment in time, remember that if you guys have questions about how the filibuster process works itself, you can go back and listen to episode 10. This is why we do all these things. They're kind of like building blocks. And these are episodes that we're going to return to again and again as we continue deconstructing the news for you.
1: So we left off where Mitch McConnell is blocking any appointments to the judiciary because he is looking to hold this off as long as possible and leave these seats open with the hopes of regaining control of the Senate. Harry Reid, the majority leader at this time, finally grows tired of having the judicial appointments blocked. He uses what we mentioned in episode 10, the nuclear option. eliminates the filibuster for all federal judgeships and federal appointments below the Supreme Court. And from 2013 until the end of 2014, the Obama administration gets some judges nominated and placed in these empty, in these open seats. This stops after the 2014 midterms because the Republicans win the Senate. McConnell becomes a majority leader and nothing is going through there at that time. And this came to a head, of course, in 2016 because Justice Antonin Scalia passed away. Obama nominated Merrick Garland to take his place on the Supreme Court Mitch McConnell would not even have meetings with Mayor Garland. It would not have the Senate Judiciary Committee leadership, the Republicans on that committee, have meetings with Garland, let alone even considering holding a vote to have him seated on the Supreme Court. What's the coda to this? Well, that brings us up to real time. 2016 presidential election happens. Donald Trump wins the presidency. He nominates Neil Gorsuch in 2017 to take Scalia's seat. The Democrats, of course, try to stop this with the filibuster. McConnell eliminates the filibuster for any judicial nominees, including Supreme Court. Gorsuch gets seated in 17. Brett Kavanaugh takes the place of his mentor, Anthony Kennedy, in 2018. And just last year, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, Amy Coney Barrett is named for her seat. So as you can see, this was a 40 to 50 year plan to remake the judiciary coming to fruition, and those in opposition in the political arena, once they could see what was coming, they didn't have the power to do anything about it. They didn't have a coherent strategy. They didn't have enough money. They didn't have the tenacity of the organization to stop it. You know, anyone who didn't want to see this happen didn't have a way to get in the way of it. So now we're here with a remade judicial landscape and a decision coming down that does not protect a constitutional right. And the general public sees this, and there are people who are upset about it in the public, trying to figure out what to do.
0: Well, the next step is challenging the constitutionality of the Texas Heartbeat Act. And that's what the U.S. Justice Department has now done in a lawsuit against Texas. But again, this case is not just about abortion. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland sees the broader significance of this moment. In a news conference about the Justice Department's lawsuit against Texas, he said, Quote, this kind of scheme to nullify the Constitution of the United States is one that all Americans, whatever their politics or party, should fear. If it prevails, it may become a model for action in other areas, by other states, and with respect to other constitutional rights and judicial precedents. End quote.
1: And you know, beyond the government response, there are people themselves looking how to make their voices heard and figure out ways to join in this battle. You know, back in the 1940s, Charles Houston used the NAACP to fight separate versus equal in the court system. Charles Houston is somebody we may have mentioned before. He helped to create Howard Law School and make it a full-time institution. He is the mentor to Thurgood Marshall and was instrumental to bringing court cases and bring on the legal framework to end uh, Jim Crow. Um, So his vehicle, to do this was the NAACP. Why, because the NAACP in those years was a strong umbrella organization. They could do press releases, public relations, they worked with the SCLC, they got um, donations from from the general public, they were very strong in the African American community. The NAACP is maybe not as much now as they used to be, I mean, for a lot of reasons. I mean, the organization is more than a century old, um, so there's a bunch of different factors. I wouldn't say it's one thing, So the money and support still comes to them, but it is also split amongst different groups with unique initiatives and ideas of how to bring the fight forward. So you might see new groups like Demand Justice or Dream Defenders or the Poor People's Campaign that take the lead, maybe in connection with the NAACP, maybe on their own, depending on the focus of their respective organizations. But be it a coalition or just one group that, takes the lead here. The energy around these issues are in the voting public. Back in 1978, during the midterm elections of that year, the Heritage Foundation saw that their work with the evangelicals was starting to pay off on that election day, and it set the stage for the presidential elections in 1980. You might see something similar this time. The 2022 midterm elections could very well be a key indicator to seeing what the public response is, and where all that energy will lead.
0: And guys, that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have a question about this episode or any of our past episodes, be sure to let us know, please. Drop us a line at hello at catchmeuptospeed.com. And tell us something like, hey Ralph and Joan, can you catch me up to speed on A, B, or C? And please like and subscribe to the podcast which you can now find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more of your favorite platforms.
1: And remember to give us a follow, leave a comment, leave a review. We want to hear from you. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter with at catchmeup2speed. That's the number two. Catch me up number two speed.
0: And as always, thanks for spending time with us today. Talk to you again soon.